chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 10, reading through the end of the chapter. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, beginning with verse 10, reading through verse 17. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's give attention to it this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. There we read, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you learned, you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pause and ask for his help as we usually do, as we consider just verses 16 and 17 and the preaching of it this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we now turn our attention to this, the infallible and inspired, indeed breathed out word of the living and true God, we ask that you would give to us what you have promised us, that we would have your spirit, that we might understand even the simplest things of this passage. Be gracious to us and help us even now, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I think it is safe to say that for every one of you, most of you in this room, you have a Bible. Many of you probably have numerous copies of the Bible Uh, either bound or in some electronic edition within your homes. You carry it around with you each day as you move through your day. The Bible, indeed, it's ubiquitous, isn't it? It's everywhere. You can find it even in such places as Walmart. The Word of God is everywhere. I heard just this week that the Bible is still the number one bestseller of all time. The question, of course, as we consider the Word of God, as we consider the preaching of the Word of God, as we consider these words that the Apostle Paul gives to this young pastor, probably in his 30s, the question really is this. Though you've read it many times, though you have studied it, though you have even memorized portions of it, some of you large portions of it, do you know, and I use that word intentionally, do you know what lies at the heart of the words of Scripture? Do you know the central theme? Do you know the main message? Do you understand the main message? Do you understand that the Word of God, without indeed the living Word, you would not have the written Word? Put a different way, the Bible is not about you or me. Oh, yes, it speaks to us. It tells us about our condition. It tells us about the desperately wicked hearts that reside in every one of us. It tells us of our great need. It tells us about sin. It gets into various loci of theology, various categories and departments of theology, and all those things are important. They're good. They're necessary. We should know them. But the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about one person. The Bible... The Word of God is about the Lord Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, the Word of God is about Him and His work through history and how God in His sovereign goodwill would work and labor through the historical events of our day and the days that have gone beyond to bring a people to the recognition and understanding that they have a need of Christ. Our own confession of faith even admits that there are many things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. But this central message, the message of Scripture, is not that hard to understand. 
What is that message? There is a God in the heavens, and you are not Him. As a result, then, therefore, because you are not Him, you are in desperate need of a Savior. And that is Jesus Christ. The Bible, the Word of God, all of Scripture is profitable for us. It's good for us to correct us, to rebuke us, to do all of these things. Why? Because it's rooted in the message of the Gospel, which is Christ alone. Paul's aware of this. He is the one who said that he determined to know nothing amongst the Corinthians except Christ and Him crucified. It's not a surprise then, therefore, to see throughout the letters of Paul the numerous references to being in Christ or of Christ. It is not then, therefore, a big surprise that as Paul gives to his young pastor, his child in the faith, these final instructions rooted in the Word of God, which teaches us about the living Word, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so I want to show you this morning that the Word of God written is about the living Word and will profit and benefit you as you trust in Him. I want to show you from these two verses and dipping into some other passages as we go, I want to show you that the Word of God written, that is what you're holding on your laps right now or maybe using an electronic version of it, the Word of God written is about the living Word and will profit and benefit you as you trust in Him. Two points as we consider these two verses Not a complicated outline by any means. First, we will consider the prophet of Scripture. Not the P-R-O-P-H-E-T of Scripture. Oh, well, that, of course, is there. But the prophet as in P-R-O-F-I-T of Scripture. And then we will consider the, um, the purpose of Scripture. The prophet of Scripture the purpose of Scripture, trying to keep my alliteration ways going as we look at these two, first, two verses. Let's first consider the prophet of Scripture. Paul wastes no time in these final two concluding verses in this chapter to tell us something of the source. He said right there in the very opening words of verse 16, we read, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Every book has an author. No book exists at all without somebody sitting down to write it. Many of you are book nuts like I am, and you know, of course, that when you pick up a book, you, you instinctively, you look at the author. Why? Because maybe it's somebody you know, somebody you've know, you know about, somebody that you have read before, and, and it gives you what? Uh, well, I'll buy that book. I don't know who that person is. Forget it. I'll buy something else. Every book has an author. But unlike all the authors who have lived, are living, will live, this author of the Word of God is unlike all of them. He is the author of the Holy Scriptures. That is to say, the triune God is the one who penned these words, specifically the Holy Spirit Himself, as Peter tells us in First, in first Peter chapter 1. It's the Holy Spirit who penned all that we have now in the canonical books, that is to say, the 66 books of Scripture. Now with this comes some serious implications. You might read an author, Melville, Moby Dick, never read it. Supposed to. I started, I got through three sentences and said, there's no possible way on earth I'm reading this book. And it went right in the corner and I bought the cliff notes and to pass the class. Okay, true confession. But this is not Melville. It, this is not Calvin. It's not Luther. It's not some human author. It is a divine author that came, therefore, through a divine breath. It has implications for all of us. Pastor, elder, deacon, member. We all must heed the emphasis 
of this divine source. The word translated there, as some of your Bibles might say, that the word of God or the all scripture is inspired by God, or, or in the ESV, it's God breathed. It's a compound word that is used only here in the entirety of the Bible. It's that word, you know I like to say that word, so I'm not going to, it's even in my notes so I wouldn't forget, but I wouldn't have forgotten. It's a hopox legomenon. It means it's used just once in the entire canon of Scripture. You won't find it in the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew. You find it only in the New Testament right here, right now, to identify the source of Scripture. The words we have in the Scripture are literally from within God and then given by God to the human writers who then penned the exact things that he wanted them to say without doing violence against their personalities, their writing styles, their education, lack of education. All of it was given out by God that they might then receive from God the Spirit of God, the very words of God, that they might then benefit and profit and help us as his people. It's interesting here, uh, the, the word that Paul chooses. In classical Greek, there is a different word to identify an author. But here, this word in the Koine Greek is the, ex get this, the exact opposite, the exact opposite of human authorship. Paul knew exactly what he was saying. He is, by necessity, telling you that because the source of Scripture comes not from a human person, not from just a mere man, but because it comes from the God of heaven, we must take it seriously. We must not treat it as trivial or minor in any way. We must reverence it, not worship it. We must reverence it. We must treat it as what it is. It's coming from very much the mind of the eternal God. And it was then because he determined to breathe out these words into the minds and hearts of the human authors who penned the exact words that he wanted them to pen, we know that it was his divine will. Because it happened. It was his will to give to us the scriptures. Now, you've confessed a few moments ago the very words of confession of faith Chapter 1, paragraph 1. It became most necessary for us because he determined it was necessary. It was his purpose, his will, his plan to give us the word of God. Why? Because you can't go outside and see anything about the need of the gospel and the hope of redemption from the sun coming up and going down. Something more had to be given. Someone else had to be exalted something else had to be communicated in such a way that we would understand the central message of the bible third not only is this comes from the divine breath it is according to the divine will there is indeed then therefore a divine imperative now there is no imperative here in the text this is homiletical license if you wish I think by good and necessary consequence, it flows naturally out of the fact that the Word of God, the Scriptures, have been inspired by God. Well, first, the message. What is the message? If God is so intended to communicate these words, put it and commit it to, to writing as that which is most necessary, what message then is God going to communicate? Much like a human author, they sit down, they write, a, they write a nonfiction book on some subject. Of course, they have a goal, they have a purpose, probably an outline, and they're following it. They have a point, a purpose, a desire, a goal. God has one too. What is that message? Well, there's a unifying theme to the entirety of the Bible. If you were to sum up the unifying themes of all of Scripture, what would you say it is? Now, no fair, I already told you. But before you walked in this room this morning, if someone were to ask you, what is the unifying theme of the Bible? What is the central message of Scripture? Many of you would have said a lot of good things. Would you have said the central unifying theme of the Bible is Christ, the living Word, 
Would that have been your answer? The message of Scripture is Christ. Every bit of it, every ounce of it, every page of it is about Christ and the redeeming work that Christ will accomplish for sinners. Each page and every narrative and every historical story, every poetical offering and every psalm, proverb, prophecy, the message of the Bible is Jesus Christ. Now, this is not too difficult to grasp. You might think, well, maybe for you, I mean, you went to seminary, you can do, you see this in the, the narrative accounts of Joshua and Judges and well, that's why the Lord's given you pastors and elders to help you see these things. Some things are harder to see. But the plainness of the gospel in Christ, who is the gospel, is very evident. Even going back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, and most of you know what I'm about to say. That singular, important, maybe arguably most important verse of all of Scripture that one in Genesis 3.15, what? In the wake of man's rebellion and sin against God, what does he say to them through the seed of the woman? I will bring forth a redeemer who will crush the work of the serpent, will reverse the effects of the fall. How is this going to happen? It's going to happen through a mediator, Jesus Christ. The Bible is about him. In all of Scripture then, from that point forward, is teaching, communicating, showing, pointing you to the need you have. And that is Christ. Maybe you're not convinced. That's fine. Timothy thought so. Paul said that about Timothy. If you back up just one verse from our text on how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are what? Able to make you wise for salvation. How? Through faith in Christ. The Bible may say a lot of other things. But this is the central message the unifying central theme of all of Scripture, and it was Jesus himself who said so. You back up to the end of Luke's Gospel. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses and move on. But Luke chapter 24, you know the story. It's his resurrection. He's traveling on the road to Emmaus. His two guys there, he's talking with them. Their hearts burned inside of them as he was basically preaching to them, and they had no, no idea who was talking. Not until later did they realize... But in verses 25 through 27, we read these very striking words. You don't think the Bible's about Christ? Here it is. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Isaiah, beginning with David, beginning with Moses. What books did Moses write? Uh, let's see, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Psalm 90. That's it. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things, what? Concerning himself. When you read the moral law, you, see, you need to see Christ. Why? Because you're not going to keep it. You need a redeemer. You need Christ who did. When you read of the narratives in Joshua and you see the various stories and the, even the choosing of the names and the various events and the places in which they go, it's all pointing us forward to the coming Redeemer. In the fullness of time, God sends forth His Son to accomplish all that these stories, all these, these, these prophecies, all the Psalter, all the Proverbs are trying to communicate to sinful men. There's a unifying theme. There's also a living theme. The message of the Bible flows out of the mandate of Christ. If He is the living Word who spoke and preached the Word, then He certainly told His followers how they ought to live. That is to say that we live according to the terms of the Word of God, the terms of the Gospel itself. What are those? Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is how Jesus sums up the entirety of the moral law. And as redeemed people, as those who have faith in Christ, who have been acquainted with the Scriptures, either by preaching or by teaching or by reading it yourself, ultimately it drives you, what? Out of love for Christ, who is, in fact, every, every page of the Word of God, to do 
whatever it is he says. Each time you read the Bible, you are reading the mind of a holy God who is infinitely wise. Now, some of you can go to school the rest of your life. You could have seven PhDs. You could have 70. You're not even close, not even remotely close to the infinite mind of a holy God who penned these words to give to us that we might first know our need to see Christ and then as it flows out of that naturally to do that which Christ tells us. Our only rule for faith and practice, our confession teaches us. The very thing that, is, that Paul says is, is to be used to conform our minds to what? To the holy nature of the God who wrote them. Our minds today, every one of you, are being influenced by something. No neutrality here. The things that you put into your head during the week is influencing the way you live. But for redeemed people who see Christ all over the Bible, we want to live like Him. We want to be like Him. And the only way I know how to do that is the way that Paul says to do it. And that is to conform our minds, what? To the very Word of God, the mind of God. How is it that my mind will ever be changed from its weakness and its blackness, its darkness? It must come through the living Word as shown in the written Word that I might then follow Him wholly with my life. This leads to a mandate then. If the source is indeed the God of heaven, the triune God, the Holy Spirit, the infinite mind of the eternal God, you must be acquainted with them. Now, the ESV doesn't do us any justice here, sadly. Not quite sure why. In verse 15, they translated the word there as acquainted. Maybe back in 100, 500 years ago, that would have worked. But we hear the word acquainted, and we think just a casual understanding a casual knowledge of. That is not the idea of the word that Paul uses in verse 15. It's literally to know. To know in an intimate way. It's not just to have a knowledge of something or about something, but to know them. Like the old King James would use when it comes to husbands and wives. To know. Intimately. Deeply. God has given you in His Word, in His kindness, has given you the Word of God in your language. Every one of you, most of you, I think, can read. And you've been given the Bible that you might read it, that you might know it. Not just know about it, but know it in such a way that it actually brings you face to face with the living Word, that you might then know what it is needed that your souls might be rescued. We can know the stories. When I was growing up, I could tell you all the stories. I could tell you everything about Nebuchadnezzar. I could even spell his name. But I didn't know the Savior. I didn't know the, the one that stood behind the story. I didn't know him. I could tell you lots about the Bible. But I didn't know it. I didn't know it at all. Why? Because I missed the main message. I'm not God. He, there is a God. I'm not Him. And because I'm a sinner in desperate need of help, there is a Savior. You must be acquainted with them. Note how Timothy was taught as a child. Parents, this is your duty. God help you if you do not teach your children the Word of God. You must do it. You show them Christ in every story. And if you're not sure how to do that, talk to me and I'll show you how to do it. Because he's there. You must show them Christ in the scriptures. You must give them the Bible. You must conduct, you should be conducting family worship with your children. I know, oh well, they don't sit still, they, they do this. They, just stay at it, stay at it. It'll bear great fruit. Be faithful. Even as Timothy's family was faithful, his mother and his grandmother, to teach him 
the sacred writings that made him wise for salvation in faith, with, in faith of Christ. You want your children to come to know Christ? Read the Bible to them and talk about it. That's what you must do. You must be acquainted with them. You must listen to them. You must listen. If this divine author is God himself, then what else do you need to listen to? Who else is perfectly right in everything that's been penned? I have never read a book written by a human author that I agreed with completely. There are times I read the Bible and I'd like to disagree. I'd like to not read what I just read. But it doesn't change its truth. It's true. It's right. We must listen to it then, therefore. We must do what it says. We must read the Word. Reading the Word, however, is not just a magic bullet. Well, I got a McShane Bible reading plan, and I check the boxes every day like a dutiful, good Christian. So if Pastor Bill comes along and says, are you reading your Bible? I can say, yep, see, here it is. I'm doing it. See my check marks? I'm glad you're doing that. Do you know what it says? Reminds me of the encounter of Philip the and the Ethiopian eunuch. He's, read, he's sitting there reading Scripture, and Philip walks up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, how am I supposed to know if someone teaches me? He didn't know what he was reading. He was reading it, but he didn't know what he was reading. It's more than just reading the Word of God. We are exhorted throughout the entirety of the Word of God to not only know what the Scriptures say, to meditate upon them, and to seek, seek to bring forth fruit of them in our lives. To do what we hear. If the message of the Bible is how can one be made wise unto salvation, as Paul references Timothy here, that is to say justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification, then to ignore this, to ignore the Scriptures, to not read them for understanding, is to put your soul in great danger. It is here that the wisdom of God is most seen, given to us. To do nothing results in a tragic end. You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they knew the Bible better than you, probably. That is to say they had a cursory knowledge of it. They could probably pass the theology exam, but they didn't do any of it. Sometimes much to the opposite. Remember what Jesus told the people there as they were listening to him in Matthew 23. He says, look, do what they say, but don't do what they do. They sit on the seat of Moses. They are sitting in this position. They are communicating the word of God, but they're not doing what they even say. Physician, heal thyself. This is what brought the ire of Christ against them. It wasn't so much their knowledge. It was the fact that they didn't, they didn't practice anything that they said they knew. If this is coming from God, if this is a divine authorship, then it's something we must do. We must hear, study, learn, understand it, teach it, communicate it to our children, communicate it to one another, husbands and wives. We must come to church. We must hear the word of God preached and taught. That's not enough. You must see Christ and you must do, then therefore, what Christ says. Isn't that what James says? Don't be just hearers of the word, but... Doers only, deceiving yourself? How can one rightly say, I see Christ all over the Bible. I see that unifying theme. I know I need a Savior. He is my Savior. And then do whatever they want. They're not listening to the message of the Savior. And with this comes a great benefit, doesn't it? Because Paul says that. All Scripture, this, this Scripture that's breathed out by God, the mind of God coming down to us, pitiful creatures is profitable. Now, it's not a word that's so difficult to understand. There's no fancy Greek word for it. It just means profitable. We know what that is. We all know how to define or explain a benefit. Employees get them when they get hired. Health benefits, life insurance, four weeks paid vacation, two weeks paid, whatever it is. Those are benefits. Those are good things. None of you would say, oh, that's terrible. They gave me health insurance. Oh, they gave me four weeks paid vacation. That's bad. I'm going to give it back. No, it's a good thing. A benefit is a good thing. It is, in a word, it's 
well, it's, it's profitable. A profit is what every business seeks. The Word of God brings profit to the child of God. It is the light that lights the path in a dark and decaying world. Some of you have been in that situation in which you were trying to find something in your house because of a power outage and fumbling about, maybe threatening to burn the house down with your candle. You grab a flashlight, you turn it on, and lo and behold, there it is. It's profitable. You can try without it, fumble about in darkness. But God gave it to us that we might not wander in darkness, that we might see the light, we might see the light that lights the world. This light that is communicated from the mind of God written so that we would not wander in darkness, it is profitable, is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. How do we apply that? I know, Reformation Sunday, so i got to say something about the Reformation, right? So I'm under that duress to, to do that. Okay, I'm going to do that. Actually, not just here, but a little bit later. But the, one of the struggles of the Reformation was to return the people back to the Word of God. Those of you who came to Sunday school this morning, you heard that in God's providence. I didn't preview the movie documentary. You heard it. One of the struggles of the Protestant Reformation was to return the people back to the Word of God because it was because it alone is sufficient for faith and godliness. It alone is sufficient to remind a person of who they are and who they're not and their great need of Christ, which is on every page of the Bible. The goal of the Reformation was to drag people out of the mire and muck of church-issued traditions that had absolutely no basis in the Word of God. Scripture alone is profitable and sufficient for your life. The question is, do you really believe that? Or would you rather read some great theologian? Calvin. I'll say it. They're helpful. Does this mean you can never read another book on the planet? You can never read Moby Dick if you want to. Um, it doesn't mean you can't, you, you, you can't read the Institutes of the Christian Religion. You can't read the Bondage of the Will by Luther. You can't, you, you can't read other... No, of course you can. God has gifted other men to help us in the Christian life. But here's the thing. When they depart from the written word of God, when they deviate from that which is true and given in the scriptures, which book do you think you you chuck? Well, of course, it's that one. And you hold on to the scriptures. You read with discernment. But you recognize that because it is profitable, the scripture alone is profitable for life and godliness. And where an author deviates from those very truths then we recognize that we must hold firm to the very scriptures themselves. But there are many in the church who, if I were to ask, believe in the infallibility of the Bible, if I, it, most of you, I suspect, could amen everything I've just said, probably every word. The question, of course, comes that if it is so profitable for us as Christians, then we ought to be treating it that way. We ought to be exercising the privilege of Scripture given to us in our own language. But there's some, they, they treat this infallible benefit, and it is an infallible benefit, as though it matters not to them. They could take it or leave it. They believe the Bible is God's Word, but they never read it. They don't listen to it. They don't value it. But God gave to you His Word. I could sit here and give you a history lesson of all the people who have died to make sure you have the Bible in your own language. I'm not going to do that. God gave it to you. That should be enough. God gives it to us that He might exalt His Son and show you your need of a Savior and a host of other things pertaining to the Christian life. Do you value the Scriptures? You know, the proof's in the pudding. It, it's, that's really where the... You can tell me you do. But if you're not reading it, meditating on it, studying it, as far as I'm concerned, you've missed Christ. Because this is where He is. Right here in the Word of God, the Scriptures itself. 
Well, what are the reasons? What does Paul say are the reasons for the profitability of the Bible? It's not complicated. They're there. There's four of them, actually. And I don't have a whole lot of print here uh, to deal with them because they're really not complicated. But I may, sh- I may surprise you as we go. The reasons. Well, first, Paul tells us it's profitable for teaching. Or, put a different way, doctrine. That's the word there. Doctrine is teaching. And the teaching it offers is that which God himself communicates about himself, his son, and his entire work of redeeming a people to himself through Christ. That is the central teaching of the scriptures. Yes, there are many other theological or doctrinal matters contained within the word of God, but the central message, the central doctrine is Christ and him crucified. Jesus himself taught many times throughout his earthly ministry. What did he teach? Kantian philosophy. Of course, that would be ridiculous because he predates Kant. No. He taught, he preached the word of God, the written word. The living word preached the written word. That is to say, as a a prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, He spoke only what his father gave him to speak. The apostles penned only what the Spirit gave them to pen. The teaching is all from God to us because we need that teaching. And that central teaching is Christ alone. The redemption of God, a holy God for sinners. Second, not only is it profitable for teaching and all that's wrapped up in that, it is profitable for reproof. Now, we're getting into a couple that you might not like very much. We all enjoy the Bible when it makes us feel good about ourselves or makes us get a warm, fuzzy feeling and tingly on the skin and all that, you know, goosebumps and whatever. That's great. And the Bible does that. But sometimes it reproves us. That is, it's the act of rebuking. Paul says it's profitable to be rebuked. Rebuked by what? The Scriptures. That is to say, the mind of God. He's rebuking. Throughout the ministry ministry of Christ, he often used the Word of God as the foundation for his rebukes against those who perverted the truth of God for their own gain or benefit. Sermon on the Mount, perfect example. You've heard it said, but I say, was he changing the law? No, he was explaining it the right way. Those legalists, those Pharisees, they had perverted it. He rebukes them. If your righteousness does not exceed the scribe and the Pharisees, you will in no way see the kingdom of heaven. Rebuke. How often did Jesus use parables to rebuke those who hated him? Rebuke happens. The reading and preaching of God's word, brothers and sisters, it will sometimes rebuke the child of God for the way they are living. Sometimes it's intentional. That is to say, sometimes I say those things to you because I love you. And I know what the word of God will do. Rightly handled, rightly communicated. But it does that. Christ rebuked his disciples. Christ rebuked the Pharisees. Christ rebuked his enemies. Christ sometimes rebukes his friends, which were his disciples. The word of God does that. But remember, when it does, it's not the pastor in most cases. I recognize that sometimes pastors go a little nuts and say dumb things. I'm sure I've done it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's really the spirit of God who wrote the words that is rebuking you. You take it up with him. This is what the Word of God does, but it's a profitable thing. Why? That you might not be lost. That you might not be like that ship on the ocean, bouncing around, going from hither and yon, and have no purpose, no direction, no anything. Third, not only does it teach us, it's profitable for teaching, it's profitable for reproof, it's profitable for correction. You might think, what's the difference between, and I actually asked myself this question as I was working through these words. You think, oh, this should be like 
elementary stuff for me, right? Well, you know, what's the difference between reproof and correction? Well, it is different. Different from rebuke is the term used here by Paul. It conveys the idea of making upright again. The term is used again only here in the New Testament, which makes it harder, of course, to really pin down an accurate, specific definition. But I think I can do it with an illustration. Many of you drive cars. You probably drove to get here unless you got a horse sitting out front in the parking lot or you walked. You drove. And you don't know this. You probably didn't give it a second thought as you were driving from your driveway to the parking lot of the church. But all the way here, you were making corrections. The little turn of the wheel here and, and the little turn of the wheel there. And it, you, you're all going to think about this now on the way home today. You're going to be looking at your steering wheel and like, well, he's right. I do do that. Well, you have to for many different reasons. We all do that. It's what you do when you drive a car. The Word of God corrects us because of the standard. And that is Christ himself. Just like when you're driving, the standard of the road is those white lines or yellow lines in the middle, whatever four-lane highway, doesn't matter. You know what I mean. The two lines that keep the car, hopefully, in the lane. You know how you get when someone gets out of their lane. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Okay, you're making corrections to stay in the right spot. In the guidance, the standard isn't some white line. The standard is Christ. As we are being conformed to him and the word of God, then therefore corrects our thinking, corrects our lives in such a way that we keep making these little adjustments here and here and here. So we stay in the lane. We stay on target. We stay in the narrow road, which leads to eternal life. The adjustment comes as you hear from him and about him as the word of God is preached and proclaimed. The word of God corrects your lives by making those small adjustments as you journey on that narrow path. And then finally, training. Training in righteousness. Not just any training. Many years ago when I was a young man, I, I had training, basic training. Ugh. Once I learned it was a big game, it was no big deal, but first few days were kind of rough. Training. Every Christian's in basic training, being trained by the Word of God, the Spirit of God speaking in the Word of God, as it points us to the living Word, as shown forth in the written Word. The idea here is one of training a child to maturity. This is the idea Paul has. We all start as babies. Sorry, it's true. You came to faith in Christ when you're 80, you're a baby. Not in the pejorative sense. In the spiritual sense, how is it you're going to grow up? The Word of God. Christ displayed in the Word of God as you are being molded by the Word of God to be conformed more and more into the living Word of God, Christ Himself. It trains us. Parents, you do this all the time. With your children, at least I hope you are. Maybe some, okay, never mind. You need to train your children. You do it. You have different rules in the house. You have standards that you expect them to abide by. You're training them. Why? So that they don't leave the house someday and turn into a bunch of lunatics. That they're faithful contributors to society. That, they're not, that you're not visiting them on holidays in a prison. You're training them. And God willing, you're training them with the Scriptures itself. Just like Timothy, we too study the Word of God. We are acquainted with it. We know it, that we might be wise unto salvation. To not use it is to, it, 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 to ignore it is to remain as a child. And the writer to the Hebrews had a lot to say about that. By now, some of you should be eating steak and potatoes. Notice he didn't say fish. He said meat. For you visitors, you'll have to ask me later what that's all about. They all know. No, no, you're still sucking on milk. What's your problem? You're not using the scriptures aren't guiding you. You're not in, ingesting the word of God. 
Therefore, child of God, you must recognize first that the reason you believe the Bible is the word of God and the mind of the living and true God is because the spirit of God has so convinced you of that truth. You don't know it because you're smart. A lot of smarter people in the world than me, at least academically, who deny that the Bible is the word of God. What does the Bible say that they are? A fool. But the reason I believe it, the reason you do, is because the Spirit of God has so convinced you of that truth. Again, our confession of faith makes that abundantly clear. It's not the evidences of it. It's not all that stuff. The Spirit of God has convinced you that it is the mind of God, pointing you to the living Word of God, Christ Himself. But the Bible was not just given, the Word of God is not just given to merely fill your minds with more theological treasure but that you might practically know how to live in a difficult and decaying world. Yes, it teaches you much about working in your job, raising a family, living in harmony as married people, etc., 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 etc. But if we're not careful, we could turn the Bible into a moral textbook and not see it for what it is. That is to say, the message is Christ. Paul doesn't give as much theological purpose here in this 17th verse. Although he does. I know you think that's double speak. You'll understand in a second. It is a theological purpose, but it's more than that. It's a practical one. The word of God was given because it was most necessary. What is the purpose of Scripture? Well, first, it is theological. Notice how he says it in the first, ver, first words of verse 17, that the man of God, it's generic, it's the typical Greek word for man, for humanity. The man of God might be, may be complete, equipped for every good work. We need to stop and think for a second. Again, taking some homiletical liberties, but I don't think I'm going all that far off the deep end here. Who is this man of God? Could we rightly apply if, in fact, the premise of the Bible being all about Christ, being about him, that he is indeed the man of God? Paul identifies who that is while not identifying him. Again, it's not double talk. We must first see that the man of God is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He learned through the things he suffered. All learned in the context of what Scripture said about him. That he would be the suffering servant of Jehovah. All the servant songs of Isaiah. He was taught that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. He was well acquainted with the sacred writings, as was Timothy. He grew in wisdom from above that comes only through the hearing of the word of God. His parents did family worship. <laughs> okay, maybe not quite the way you do it, but they did it. They taught him. Now, I know that that's almost enough to blow your mind uh, right out of your head. I, I get that. But he grew in wisdom in stature and uh, in respect and all this with God and men. He is the man of God that was fully furnished that you and I might be fully furnished. You see, without the living word, the written word would be unnecessary and in fact, it wouldn't even have been given. For what purpose? To tell me how terrible I am? Thank you. I got that part. Is there a solution? Not really. I just wanted to let you know. No. The whole point of the Bible is that we might see the man of God who was fully furnished by the Spirit of God and preached and spoke the Word of God into the hearts and minds of people that we might become men and women and children of God. The men of God, or if you prefer, the men, women, boys, girls of God. But you, know, put, you can put anything you want there because it's the generic term for humanity or men, people. But this is an exclusive statement. Read it again. 
that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped. It's an exclusive statement. This is not a generic statement. Paul's not just applying this to anybody. He's not just saying, hey, what all of you human beings out there. No. He's talking about a specific bunch of people. He says that the man of God, the women of God, the children of God may be what is therefore required. They may be thoroughly equipped. What is required then? How is it that I'm a man of God? How can I become a man of God? How can you become a man of God, a child of God? How is it, how is it possible? The same way Timothy did. He was acquainted with the sacred writings. He was taught the Bible. He was taught the word of God. That is to say that he had faith in Christ. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? You must have faith in Him or you're doomed? I can't be a man of God without faith in Christ. It's impossible. Faith in Christ. Sola fide. There it is. More Protestant Reformation stuff. You know, got to get it in there. That is, you must be justified due to the finished work of the living word before you will ever believe what the living word said and what the written word communicates. You must be born again. Jesus said that to a brainiac who didn't display much of his brains during that encounter in John 3. Hey, look, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God. You won't believe anything I tell you unless you've been born from above. You must have faith in Christ. You must be born again. You must uh, lay hold of Christ and him crucified. That's who you must look to. You must look to the man of God if you're going to be a man of God or woman or child or whatever. There's not any other whatevers, is there? I think I exhausted them all. Infant. There. Got one in. You must believe the gospel. Because the Bible, aside from the gospel, just condemns you. It condemns you on every page. The law condemns you without Christ. The prophets, they condemn you without Christ. All the words of Christ condemn you without Him. All the words of the Apostle Paul, all of it condemns you without Christ. You must have faith in Christ. The question, brothers and sisters, well, I probably shouldn't have said it that way. The question, friends, is this. Do you have faith in the living Word? Do you see Him on the, in the Bible? Do you know your state? Do you understand that without Him, you have no hope in the world? None. Have you looked to Him alone for salvation? No, don't tell me about you, you were raised in a Christian home. That's great. I'm glad for that. You have a benefit that a lot of people don't have. That's good. Mommy and Daddy, read the Bible to me. Wonderful. I'm thrilled to hear that. That's how Timothy came to faith. That's how you might have you. You must look to Christ, and then you must faithfully follow Him. Christ has given us His Word through His Spirit. The Spirit has told us what He told Him to say. How is it that the Spirit knew what to say? Because Jesus told Him what to say. That's how. He will only say what I tell Him to say. How is it possible then? That we can say we have faith in Christ and then do whatever we want to do. As Christians and disciples of Christ, we desire to faithfully follow Him and all that He says. Yes, the Bible's a big book. I, I get that. It's, it is big. You can read it in 72 hours, though, if you sat down this afternoon and started reading and didn't stop. It is a big book. It's not always easy to understand in many places. I understand that. You don't think, I don't know that? I open my Bible, I'm... In 1 Corinthians, and I'm like, I have absolutely no idea what he's even talking about. Why? Because it's sometimes hard to understand. But because I have faith in Christ, I have something else. I have the Spirit who wrote these words, who tells me what they mean, who communicates through the ordinary means that I might give to you what the Word of God says, and that you, even as one sitting there, might understand what the Word of God says. And maybe you don't sometimes. But you're a disciple of Christ. You have access to the Spirit. And you have access to elders and pastors in the church. You can always ask within reason. That is to say, in the next week, 
Ask an elder. It's important. It's profitable to help you on your journey to being more like Christ and also practical in the sense of how Paul puts it here. It's very subtle. But look how he says it. The man of God, that the man of God, all of these things, profitable, it's all, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Let's begin with this complete. It's an interesting word. That is to say that in this practical outflowing of the value and benefit of Scripture, you will be completed for the life to come. You're not going to be left undone. It is the Word of God because it communicates the living Word, the written Word, that completes you. I was tempted to write down that crazy line from one of those movies I saw once, but I resisted. And I didn't. I could quote it, but I'm not going to. The Word of God is about God's purpose to redeem a people to Himself. He will make right what sin has wrecked. He will make it right. That's the Genesis 3.15 promise, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It will pave the way for how you arrive at your heavenly rest. How do you think you're going to get there? Try harder. No. You get there through the Word of God speaking, by the Spirit of God speaking, who continues to complete you because you were incomplete before Christ. Just as the living voice of Christ, the divine word, made complete what was not in the first week of creation, he makes right in you by his word what is now currently incomplete. He, through his word, reverses the effects of the fall. You are now a new creation. God has purposed to use his word as it teaches about the living word to do that. In other words, this has an eschatological emphasis, end times emphasis. But second, not only does Paul have the end in view here, but he also has the here and now. What do we do until then? Well, we first recognize that we're being made complete as we journey from point to point. You'll be equipped for life. Paul says you'll be equipped to deal with all sorts of issues that come because the Bible alone is sufficient for everything that comes to us. It's sufficient for faith and godliness. Paul says the Word of God equips you to live the Christian life with the goal to always be Christ-like. Just as a mechanic cannot perform his craft without tools, the child of God cannot live without the Word of God. During the Reformation, there it is again, many, most, did not have access to the Word of God written. You heard that this morning. Let it be translated. Got the Reformers in big trouble, too. What did they have access to? Preaching. John Huss, there in Prague, preached for a year before the city was put under interdict. That is to say, the Roman church said, no more communion for you, which frightened people half to death because they thought that was the means by which they touched the face of God. Preaching. They couldn't read the Latin Bible. They were just commoners. They weren't scholastics, educated. They went to work, came home. No Bible. But they heard it every Lord's Day. Proclaimed that it might equip them for this life. Notice where Paul goes immediately at the end of chapter 3. Now, there's no four in the Greek. There's no three either, or two, or one. It's one letter. Look what he says. 
I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, Timothy, these are eternal issues. What does he say? Have a small group Bible study. Or let's all sit around and pool our ignorance. I think it means this. I think it means that. You get nowhere. No, no, he says preach the word. K. Russo, herald the word. Every Lord's Day, when you come in here or in there, you are being equipped. Not by me so much, but by the Spirit who wrote these things. You're being completed for that great day. You're being equipped for today that you might live a godly life that mirrors the living word. Did he not do what his father told him? He heard the voice of his father. That is to say, the preaching of his father, if you will. And he did it. He was equipped to do his father's will. The question really is, friends, do you take advantage of it? In other words, are are you here every Lord's Day unless you're hindered providentially? And we can have a long talk about what that really means. Do you seize this opportunity to understand that God is using His written word by the Spirit, His mind, to complete you for the day of glory and to equip you for today that you might live faithful lives mirroring, emulating the living word? You need to be here. Both services. Because preaching happens in both. You should be glad you didn't live in Geneva. Calvin preached like 11 times sometimes every week. 11. I don't know how he did it. He, well, he was Calvin. I am not him. You need to be here. This is where you're being equipped and completed. It's not just sitting in your home reading your Bible. If God wanted us to do that, that's what he would have told us to do. And Paul would have told Timothy to tell him that. But he said, no, no, preach the word instead. Herald the mysteries of salvation, the glorious hope of Christ, herald it to people. That's what they need to be equipped and completed in this life. Because the Word of God is not about you. It's about the one you want to be like, though. Isn't that the hope of every Christian, to be like Him, to see Him, to be with Him? The Word of God is about Christ. The Word of God is profitable for the followers of Christ. How can it be any different? If the Scriptures show us Christ, the more you hear them and study them and live them, the more like Christ you will become. Therefore, four reminders, as it were. I know those of you who love to take notes love this moment. (laughs) And so I try to keep it simple. First, remember that the Bible is about the living word. Don't ever forget that. It's not a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic book. It is the mind of God that shows forth the living word of God. That's Christ himself. Second, remember that the written word containing all the written word contains all things necessary to be like the living word. God didn't leave you wondering. I know some of you are overly inquisitive. If God didn't tell you, don't worry about it. The secret things belong to Him. But He has told you everything you need to know about life and godliness. Third, remember, you cannot be like the living Word and dismiss the written Word. You can't. You might try for a season, but you'll be be in that hall of, of, well... You'll be in that chapter in Hebrews when the writer says, what is the deal with you people? By now you should be eating steak and you're still sucking on milk. I'm not growing. Well, you're never here. You cannot be like the living word and dismiss the written word. Don't absent yourself from the worship of God. 
If so, you will miss the voice of the living word and his, as his written word is preached. And fourth and finally, but I'm sure there's many more of these I could add, but okay. Remember, God has given you his written word to show you the living word. In him, not in you, not in me, in him, you will be equipped and subsequently complete, made ready for your heavenly rest. You see, God knew what he was doing when he said those words to our first parents all the way back in Genesis. And the rest of the Bible just unfolds it for us. So you don't need any other arguments. You don't need any other plea. Yes, I'm quoting from him. What you need and have is the written word that communicates to you the living word. That is all you need. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Of course, thank you that in your word we see something of your son. We see all of your son. And we would pray that you would use the written word to make us more like him each day of our lives. Strengthen us. Help us by your spirit. You've given it to your people. May you use it to conform us more and more into the very image of Christ we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.